Empire. Called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. It's a serious question. I, I appreciate your passion. I share it. I've addressed this question. I've addressed my personal feelings. And I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. You're listening to Just Ask the Question. Adventures in Reporting with your host, Brian Karam. Hi, and welcome back to Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, and today it's a, a joy to have with us Mary Trump, who has written a book about her uncle. You may know him, President Donald Trump. And uh, she has, I want to just quote a blurb before we go to break. It says, uh, and, and this is a blurb from uh, Amazon, how Donald Trump became a man who now threatens the world's health, economic security, and social fabric. So when we come back from the break, we'll hear from Mary Trump. Uh, we're back, and uh, I am Brian Karam, and the name of the show is Just Ask the Question. And with us today is Mary Trump, who's written a great book about uh, Donald Trump. And we'll mention that many times today, if we can. <laughs> but you've, you've had really good uh, success in selling this book so far, haven't you, Mary? It, it's gone <laughs> rather well, I have to say, um, which is really nice, but much more gratifying to me is that is the way it's landed, you know? Yeah, it has. Uh, so yeah. I'm going to just ask the question. In the blurb, it says, Donald Trump became the man who now threatens the world's health, economic security, and social fabric. How so? Yeah, well, I'm actually beginning to think that might have been an understatement. Um, Ooh, but, I'll, I'll, uh, also on that. <laughs> yeah. Um, if we look at the last three years, we've seen a deterioration of our alliances in the West that we've spent seven decades forging. Uh, we've seen an unraveling, a unilateral unraveling of treaties that have required the cooperation of many different nations and many years to forge. Um, and we've seen an increase in hate crimes in this country. We've seen uh, the elevation of the worst elements of our society, which in the past have at least been somewhat contained, but uh, you know, at least until 2018 have been represented, you know, that 22 to 28%, whatever it is, has been represented by a hundred percent of the American government. Right. Uh, so, and, yep. you know, and that has led us to uh, the horrors we're facing with COVID-19 and I'm, you know, and I'm not even talking about climate change, which we haven't addressed and have, have lost ground on right. and things like that. So, uh, you know, I don't want to suggest that as I think the blurb does suggest that it's just Donald. Uh, it's, it's, I, I blame his enablers more than I blame him, certainly. Well, that's one thing I want to touch on. Now, if you dro just dropped out of the sky and didn't know that you've, you've written this book, one of the questions I want to ask you about him and, and growing up with him is, it seems like there are people who support him and love him no matter what. There are people who will never support him, never love him. But how does he, I mean, I look at him and a confession to make here, my father 
uh, was an alcoholic and there were members of my own family that remind me a great deal of, of your uncle Donald. So, I mean, I know the beast when I see it, mm -hmm. I don't know how people can come to be an enabler of Donald Trump. Why is that? What, what causes that? Well, I think that's a question where we should spend the next few decades trying to answer because it can't happen again, no matter who it is. You know, and this is this isn't this is doesn't answer the question exactly because it's just sort of recognizing a pattern. But patterns, especially in 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 psychology, can be very important. When I started formulating the book, um, I was struck by just how many through lines there were from my grandfather to the Republican Party. You know, with the the media, the banks, and Mark Burnett in the middle. You know, and I think that the myth that my grandfather created about Donald was so powerful, you know, that he was this brash, brilliant, self-made uh, real estate developer and entrepreneur. Um, and it, my grandfather became so tied to it because his own success was tied up in Donald's perceived success. Uh, which is why my grandfather funded Donald so extravagantly and used all of his power and influence and connections to promote him and get him out of jams and stuff. You know, it just took over. And, you know, New York media in the 80s wasn't exactly, uh, you know, this hard-hitting... Uh, no, no, it was Right? It was, it, it was the glitz and the glamour and the surface. And, you know, one thing Donald was good at was playing them yeah, manipulating them, right? And then the banks made the strengths, same mistake. I'm sorry. I would say that's one of his strengths is yep. his ability to scam and 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 flash over substance. You see that yep. every day in the White House. Yeah, and it may be his only strength, if we can call it that. You know, right? Or, or his only skill, maybe yeah. is a better way of putting it. Very effective if you want to sell cars, not so much if you want to be a president. And no offense to those who sell cars, my dad did it for many years. Right. Exactly. No, it's a, it's a good skill to have, you know, um, as a salesperson, but even, even his, uh, you know, when you're selling a car, you're selling something that's substantial and can be tested. Right. Um, but he was selling an image that had no basis in reality. And the number of people who were willing to uh, either to overlook that or, you know, uh, had a hand in perpetuating it, it was the most astonishing thing that I, I, well, not the most, but one of the most astonishing things was just the consistency of the enabling and the, um, you know, the willingness to use him and the willingness to legitimize him, uh, you know, that, that uh, we are all suffering for now. The title of the book, in, in case you are just joining us, is Too Much and Never Enough, and uh, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. So specifically, we've touched on a little bit of it, enabling. What is there anything, one specific thing you can point to that made Donald Trump who he is, or was it just a series of things? Yeah, it was a series of things. I think, uh, you know, it started certainly with um, my grandmother's serious illness when Donald was two and a half, which uh, kept her away from her kids for six months to a year. And because he was at such a critical developmental stage, he must have experienced his abandonment. Uh, not that it was her fault, of course, but he was two and a half. And suddenly his, his not just his primary caregiver, but his only real human connection, you know, like the only person who nurtured him in any way or soothed him or saw him uh, was unavailable. Um, 
that plus the fact that my grandfather was completely unsuited to fill her role in any significant way. Yeah, and also had him loveless. Is that correct? You said he's loveless. He was loveless. Yeah, he was a sociopath. How so? You no. Know? And how did well, that affect Donald? Well, I mean, I mean that technically, I, you know, I'm yes. not just bandying the term about. No, no. Um, and we're talking to you as a, as a doctor, you, you would know. Right. Um, probably the most prominent, I mean, just as somebody who obviously knew my grandfather, you know, he like had no, if you couldn't be of use to him, you were completely irrelevant. When my, my father, who was the oldest son and was meant to be the heir and, and was the namesake, when he failed to be of use in the way my grandfather required him to be, he was systematically dismantled over the, you know, the remaining two decades of his life, essentially. Donald, who was seven and a half years younger, learned by watching what my father went through and the psychological abuse um, my grandfather inflicted upon him uh, to be what was required, you know, tough, a killer, somebody who never admits mistakes, somebody who uh, understands kindness to be weakness, somebody who can never be wrong, and somebody who always has to be winning. Because in my family, my grandfather set it up as a zero-sum game. There could only be one winner. Everybody else was losing. It's not a great way to run a family. No, not a great way to run a country either. No, it's not. I mean, it's it's even a, it's a terrible way to run a business as well, although yes. that has been sort of the Western model. Um, but it's certainly terrible because families and countries and governments are not businesses. So, yeah, right. you're totally right there. And so that effect on Donald, you think there was a time uh, and a place where he could have turned out differently or was he destined to be who he is? I think if my grandmother had stepped up, because uh, one of the problems or the, the, the most basic problem uh, that came from the combination of her uh, perceived abandonment and my grandfather's failures was that, you know, at a very young age, Donald experienced a lot of loneliness and fear and in order, and he was two and a half. So the only way he could fend that off was to develop defense mechanisms, which essentially uh, deflected those feelings. So he didn't have to experiencing them, experience them to, uh, to such a degree that would have, you know, um, been extraordinarily painful. Those defense mechanisms, however, like, you know, bullying and, and projecting and um, uh, minimizing, on the one hand, made it really difficult for him to negotiate the world when he went out into it. You know, it made it very difficult, if not impossible, for him to get close to other people. But as he grew older, my grandfather came to value those things in him. So I think by then it was a done deal. If my grandmother, after she recovered to the extent that she did, had been able to heal the rifts between them, maybe he would have had a chance, but she never did sufficiently. And in fact, when he got sent away to boarding school or sorry, the military academy at the age of 13, um, my grandmother didn't even put up a fight. And I think that was the final betrayal and there was no turning back. And well, here's the question then. Did you ever think that he would end up being president of the United States? Jesus, no, no, uh, no, no. Um, I still, it's not as bad as it was the first two years, but I still have moments of just horror 
when it just like hits me. Because me too, every day when I walk right? into the White House. Yeah, oh, I don't even know how you do that. I, I mean, you should get hazard pay. It's You're not your- the first to say that. Yeah. It, it, it's a depressing, and I, I wanted to talk a little bit about, I mean, in the second block, we'll talk more about the presidency itself, but it is, for those of us who cover him, it's, I likened it to when I covered a war. I haven't felt this way since I went to cover a war. And it's this overriding sense of dread today. Former um, First Lady, you know, uh, Michelle Obama said, you know, she, she wakes up with low-level depression. I, yeah. I, I get it because yeah. I'm there on the front seat. And what I see are all these people who kowtow as, as sycophants to him. I've heard him yell in the White House. I've heard him scream at people. Um, he's told me to sit down. He's, he tries to act like a bully to pretty much everyone. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, I, 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 it's, to me, it's very frustrating. How, I mean, how do you grow up with, how do you get that way? How do, is it that you seem to have no care for anyone else, but your very own, uh, very self-centered point of view? Well, he was raised that way. You know, he was raised, he was the only person in my family who mattered to my grandfather. And my grandfather's opinion was the only one that mattered, right? He had everything thrown at him. He never had to succeed ever. Right. Like he never, or I guess what I should say is he never had to work in order to succeed. He just kind of did because my grandfather made that happen. You know, uh, he never was a His first happen. enabler. Yes. The, yes. Oh, yeah. Like to a degree that still blows my mind, honestly. And not just that he enabled Donald, but the, the extent to which he tore everybody else down, you know, like he could have enabled Donald and still been nice to everybody right. else. Right. But no, that, that couldn't happen. What I see happening now is, is just more of the same, but just more people willing to be the enablers. And what I find not surprising exactly, but Deeply disappointing is that there are so many people, and think think about this, there are so many people weaker than Donald's. How is that possible? Yeah, I, I, I get you. That's when I talk to some of the members of the administration, that's exactly, and even, uh, you know, I'm going to call out some of the members of the press for that as well. Sure. It, it's it's yeah. annoying to me that you cannot, I mean, I get grief from both sides. Why do you stand up? Why do you do this? Why do you push back? I'm sorry. That's just, how do you not? How do you not? Right. How do you sit there and take it? I'm, I'm not a stenographer and I don't understand how people who, who think that way are that way. And I really don't understand people who work for him who put up with it. I, I, for the love of God, I couldn't do it. I I had that discussion. I'll tell you that briefly. I had a Mm -hmm. discussion with Sean Spicer once and he said, uh, well, Brian, what would you do if the president of the United States, asked you to serve your country, what would you do? And I said, well, when you put it that way, I would, I would, you know, I would step up and serve my country. But the moment he told me to go out into that briefing room and lie about the size of the inauguration, I'm not working for the country, I'm working for him. And I'd tell him where to step off. And and I I don't understand, I, I really don't understand the psychology of not doing that, because he's so obviously gone. And unworthy, you know. Unworthy of it, exactly. Right. And that, again, underscores the weakness because he's very, I guess he does have more than one skill. He's very good at finding people who are weaker and uh, less capable in particular ways than he is. And, you know, I, 
I hear that conversation you had with Spicer and I find it infuriating because one of the reasons we're here, and I mean, there are many that go back decades, but just specifically in the term, in the context of, you know, the last election and this administration since inauguration day is that for whatever reason, people don't say no and people don't hold them accountable. So the little things, and they're not little things, but what the things that we're told are little things like, I don't know, um, maybe doing unconstitutional things on a daily basis, like violating the emoluments clause, like having everybody hatch in the- <laughs> Right. How many people, how many Hatch Act violations? Oh, well, what are you gonna do? Well, it exists for a reason, you know, so you let him get away with that stuff and it just makes him feel impervious and entitled. Um, and then it leads to things like not being removed from office after he's been impeached because Republicans won't even call witnesses. Well, yeah, we'll talk again. We'll talk a little bit right. about that. That's right. in the next block. When he was growing up, there was a, something in the book that I want to talk about. And it's, it's, it, it was labeled as the small details that speak the loudest. That Trump and his ex-wife, Ivana, once regifted a Christmas present of a hamper of food to you with a tin of caviar taken out first. Well, we're speculating about whether or not it was caviar, but caviar is the thing that would have fit in with the other right, things right. in the basket. Yeah. Yes, yes. What else would be illuminating in that uh, uh, that you remember uh, uh, as his niece growing up that, you know, the small things like that that bespeak larger problems? Yeah, because it does, it speaks to this casualness and, and this, you know, this knowledge that, they don't have to be thoughtful or pay attention because they're they're better than right. They're, well, they just don't care. It, it to oh, me no, that kind of thing. That that kind of thing to me. If I got a gift like that from someone, I say, well, obviously I don't matter for a hill of beans to you. It, you it, it was better than the gold MA shoe with the hard candy. Um, <laughs> but about that, you know, uh, and yeah. Anyway, the three-pack of Bloomies underwear was also very useful. Um, All right, tell that story. Well, that was actually the, the first Christmas when uh, after Donald and Ivana got married. That was my very first Christmas present from the couple, my uncle and my new aunt. It was a three-pack of Bloomies underwear. Bloomies was very big at the time. Bloomingdale's in uh, Fresh Meadows in Queens. Very, very high-end, you know, exciting place to go shopping. But a three pack of Bluey's underwear cost $12 in, in 1979, I believe it would have been, or 78, which I don't know what the inflation rate is, but it's still not like a, you know. Yeah, a three pack underwear. Here you go, honey. <laughs> and it was underwear. Oh, so I think socks would have been better, but um, <laughs> you know. I just—I can't imagine what it would be like to open that. Gee, thanks, underwear. Yeah, how, how do you thank somebody? Like, how do you say thank you with a straight face? I, I mean, I—the way I am, if I open up a three-pack of underwear, I would go, "Uh oh, <laughs> did I do something wrong?" Like, what do you say? Oh, thank goodness, I don't have any. Right. <laughs> oh, there was a hole in my wardrobe. Thank you. Yes. What? Well, did you notice something that I didn't? <laughs> 
That's, I mean, my warp mind, that's Ryko right away. <laughs> Holy hell. What like that's that's shockingly the one thing I always have enough of, but you know. <laughs> right. Three pack underwear. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were celebrating his birthday. Yeah, so, right. You know. Happy birthday, Jesus. Here's some underwear. <laughs> One of the other things I wanted to talk about growing up with the family did did you were you able to get along with them? Was it difficult? To oh, be yeah, no, 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 not at all. I mean, it helps not mattering very much, you know. <laughs> so, um, you know, I didn't make any waves. I I was just there, you know, and I did my best. I again, there are two generations of grandchildren. So the first generation was my cousin David, my brother, and me. And, you know, the second generation didn't come along for another 12, 16 years. So it was just us. And I was obviously the youngest and the only girl. So I did my best. And to that's why up. you got the underwear. <laughs> I, I, I guess so. I guess boys don't need, who knows? Yeah. I'm oh, not going there. Let's but, not go there. Let's yeah, the, the commando thing or whatever. But um, <laughs> so, you know, I just, uh, in keeping up, I mean, I just, you know, I played ball with them in the backyard, whether it was soccer, or baseball, or football. And I did my best, but I was a little kid and I was a girl. And a lot of times they just kind of didn't want me around. So I'd just wander around my grandparents' house and find a place to hide. <laughs> so, um, but no, I never had any issues, like, you know, cause Donald and Robert were, were not that much older. Right. I think they were like 17, 18, 19 years older. So they were more like older siblings. So it was very, there was a casualness, like that's why, like we we call them by their first names, and um, but on the other hand, though, there was nothing beyond the house. Like it, with the, well, Rob would take us uh, for rides in his convertible sometimes, but it's not, you know, they didn't invite us anywhere. We didn't go out for lunch, um, so it didn't extend beyond the core family and holidays and stuff like that. So before we go to break, I guess the last question I ask you in this in this block is. Was there a moment, can you point to a moment in time or an incident where you said, ooh, something's not right here with Donald? Is there anything that's, or was it an accumulation of things? You know, when I was in my 20, because remember when he was starting to get known outside of New York, right? I was in at school, I was in college, I was at Tufts University. So this is before the internet, before cell phones. So like right. I could, pretend it when none of it was happening. Uh, so I didn't follow, but it wasn't until, you know, then that I started really, like if I paid with a credit card or a check or something, people would ask me if I was related. I'm like, whoa, okay, this is new. Um, so, but I was sort of on the periphery of it because I was living in Boston. So it wasn't until I moved back to New York uh, that I realized on the one hand, just how big his name had gotten or his, you know, presence in the city had gotten, but also, you know, I started hearing the, the, the bad stuff too, you know, um, the, uh, the, the affairs and the, the, the rumors about affairs and what have you. But in terms of what noticing anything wrong, I mean, by the time I was in my twenties, it was more like, well, you know, he's an asshole, but he's our asshole, you know? <laughs> Yeah, we got uh, a few of those in our family. Yeah, and <laughs> you know, right. <laughs> Thankfully. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, although, I don't know, could it be worse? I don't think so. Um, yeah, it couldn't be. So, and I, I mean, I never thought he was particularly bright, 
you know, but well, yeah, you have, you, you have him. Uh, someone took his college admissions test. Uh, mm -hmm. Swindle inheritance money from his siblings. Yeah. And so, but I, I mean, did you did you ever like have a, a face to face or a, or a, an encounter with him where you came away going, aha? Yeah. Well, when he hired me to ghost write his third book, I think it was his third book. Right. I forget second or third. I think it was his third. Um, you know, I actually, for the first time ever, I act, I saw him on a daily basis and, uh, you know, we would chat every day and I'd stop by his office, but he would never sit down for an interview with me, which I thought was really weird. Um, and he would just say the strangest things that like, he, out of nowhere, he asked about my mom, uh, you know, whom he probably hadn't seen in four years and we never spoke about her. And he's like, you know, I think it was a real mistake for us to, to continue to support her after, you know, she and Freddie got divorced. I'm like, okay, I didn't know this at the time, but I found out later, he was still on his $450,000 a month allowance from the banks, first of all. Wow. Secondly, wow. he had nothing to do with my parents <laughs> he was still in college when my parents got divorced or well, maybe not, but he was much younger and it had nothing to do with him. So he made it sound like it was his money. Right. And I'm like, yeah, you know, God forbid my mother be supported for raising my grandparents, grandchildren, right. you know, their oldest son's children. So I thought that was weird. And then probably the thing that made me most suspicious is that when he had somebody else fire me <laughs> from the writing gig, um, which at the time I didn't realize would become a pattern, um, of his, uh, I had no idea what he did in his business. And I found that really weird and yeah. not disturbing because I, you know, I didn't care. It was like a mom and pop real estate shop, but I, I like, that was the beginning of my thinking, wait a minute, I think the Trump organization is like a sinecure that my grandfather set up for him. <laughs> right. You know, um, and I think uh, I've been proven right. Yeah. We're going to take a short break. Uh, thanks, Mary, for being here. We'll be right back. Hi, and we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Kerman. With me today is Mary Trump, who's talking about a new book uh, regarding Donald Trump. It was published July 14th. It's called Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. It's available on Amazon and wherever fine books are sold. There, I got the plug in. And so, uh, but we're talking a little bit about uh, Donald Trump before the presidency. And before we get to the presidency, a couple of uh, things I wanted to uh, follow up on. And one was the 2019 Pulitzer Prize that was given to the New York Times for an 18-month investigation of Donald Trump's finances that debunked his statements of self-made wealth. Uh, you were reportedly a key source of information for that study. Uh, is there anything you can share with us about the Donald's finances that we, we should know, and especially his taxes, which he's avoided uh, giving since he became a public figure? Yeah, well, what's really interesting about Donald's comments since the book has come out is that he made it a point to suggest that I broke the law because I released his tax returns. Okay. <laughs> First of all, I'm his niece. I don't have his tax returns. I never have. Right. But 
what he's suggesting then is that the material I released to the New York Times, if it was indeed his tax returns, proved that he's committed tax fraud and other crimes. So I'm not entirely sure why he thought that was a good idea to suggest that it was his tax returns that uh, helped them draw these conclusions. But that aside, I mean, hopefully we're going to find out soon. Cy Vance, do your job. Um, <laughs> For a change. Um, I was going to add that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. Great. Yes. They're going to like there. There's a lot there to dig into. Oh my gosh. Look, what did the, the, I handed over 40,000 pages of documents to the Times reporters and uh, Suzanne Craig and Russ Butner through, I, I mean, just brilliance and just the most extraordinary investigative journalism were able to find literally just from my grandfather's personal tax records, his personal checking account records and the tax returns attached to all of his entities, you know, his more than four dozen buildings and properties throughout uh, predominantly Brooklyn and Queens, um, were able to show that Donald and some of his siblings had a, what was essentially a shell corporation that acted as a, a in part as a money laundering operation and in part as a way to siphon so much cash away from my grandfather's legitimately successful real estate empire so that its value fell so precipitously that they avoided paying hundreds of millions of dollars in taxes. Wow. Uh, so they were able to connect my aunts and uncles to all of that through my grandparent, my grandfather, well, and some of my grandmother's tax records. So imagine what we'll find with Donald's actual records. That, that will be, uh, and hopefully we will at some point in time. Well, if it's now to the presidency a little bit, and uh, you as, as, as a psychologist can maybe uh, answer some of my questions that I've had, because for the last three and a half years, I've had the, I guess, either the privilege or the, the curse of being there pretty much on a daily basis. And being within 10 feet of him many times, asking him questions, having him answer them sometimes, uh, and having him getting very upset when those questions are asked on other occasions. Right. And one of the things I've noticed recently is, and I want to start with recently before I go back, but recently I've noticed a deterioration in the energy level. I've also noticed people make speculations all the time. What happened in November when he went to Walter Reed? Mm. There was a rumor that he went back to Walter Reed this past weekend, which wasn't true. And I, I was able to figure that part out and, and got confirmation that he didn't. He likes to golf a lot, but he, um, he, he has, I've noticed tremors in his hands, slurring of speech. Um, last week, Tamara Keith from NPR asked him a very simple question. There on, he had a briefing on Tuesday. He was supposed to have a meeting with some pharmaceutical executives that day and it, it got canceled. And yet when she brought it up to him, he seemed befuddled, confused, and said, oh, no, no, that was, uh, I don't know, we'll do that tomorrow. We're planning on doing it. But, which was BS because he was leaving town the next day. Right. I, I mean, he, I, I know that he's going to BS me when he opens his mouth. I know that he's going to deflect. And, but lately, it also seems like his energy level is low. And he's, is, it, is it cogent of us or is it just pure speculation that we question his mental health? Well, you know, his mental health should have been questioned all along. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
I, I get that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, early yeah, onset dementia is that a problem? I, mean, I, I question whether or not he's deteriorating. I've seen him not be as sharp as he used to be. He used to be much more combative. And I'm wondering about dementia and other things. He is an aging septuagenarian. He does have it in the family. And his, his BS isn't even, my God, it used to be, you know, I, I look, I grew up from a long line of bullshitters. <laughs> I mean, car salesmen, lawyers, <laughs> politicians. I know the brand, yeah. uh, reporters. And, and so, but his BS could never pass muster at my dad's breakfast table. And it's yeah. gotten worse, it seems, in the last year. I mean, considering one of my family mottos was don't bullshit a bullshitter, I'm sure my grandfather would be deeply disappointed in his uh, Donald. Jesus, Ford. that's my family's motto. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I can only speculate. In fact, you, you see him more than I do. Um, but I think it's just as likely, you know, setting aside the fact that he's a deeply unhealthy person physically, you know, yes. his, his diet and his lack of sleep and his failure to exercise and whatever the hell he is doing on a golf course, that's not exercise. Riding around in a golf cart and striking a ball and then getting in a, yeah, that's not exercise. Yeah, and no never getting there. never getting better at it, which is really <laughs> that disturbs me more than anything else. Honestly, I I know it shouldn't, but it does. A lot um, of mulligans in his life, I take it. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a theme. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, <laughs> you know, so I don't. There's no way for me to know, but my premise all along has been that it's not that he's deteriorating or sorry that his his mental capacity is deteriorating um you know unless of course he does has alzheimer's dementia right. but i don't know it's that this the situation has changed so drastically this man is under more stress than he's ever been in his life and it's getting worse because Finally, at least I hope, finally there seems to be some kind of cumulative effect happening with his egregious behavior. You know, up until recently, it was like the replacement principle. One, he did one horrible thing and then he did the next one. So the first one was just disappeared. Right. I've never seen anything like it I'm in my life. It's just horrifying. It's like, seriously, it's like, you know, a serial killer. It's like, oh, well, you know, we know we killed a bunch of people already so of course we expect them to kill another one like why care about the first it's crazy it's completely crazy that seems to be changing and i think it started with the russian bounty thing which of course still hasn't gotten enough attention but it seems oh, it to have a life though it still seems to be in the ether and between that covid19 which he cannot get out from under no matter how insane his base is because too many people actually care if their children live which is you know who knew um you know and i i'd like to think that the book is getting under his skin a little bit so you know not not that it's anywhere near as important as the other things well, i can but, tell you for a fact from being in the white house it has <laughs> and that's good because that's the only way things shift is if we keep piling on you know so um and and not letting things go Right. 
well, not amazing to me because I guess it's not the most self-evident thing considering he's such an egomaniac and a narcissist, but no, you're absolutely right. And that's, that's why he's so dangerous. He has no self-esteem. None. And, uh, you know, which speaks a lot to what his childhood was like. That he's never been held accountable. And it's amazed never. me with the number of <clears throat> scandals and things that have occurred in this administration that he can deflect and his enablers in Congress have enabled him, you know, Mitch McConnell, Matt Gates. I, I mean, Lindsey Graham. I, I mean, I could go on and on. Some of these sycophants, Jim Jordan, who I, I, do you talk about a psychopath? I mean, yeah, I couldn't be in the same room with him. I wouldn't trust myself, quite honestly. Um, <laughs> it's very hard. But that, but those people have all enabled him. But it's, yeah. I, I think, the two things that have, first of all, I don't think he can explain away the fact that he first called the coronavirus a hoax, and that we would only have eleven or twelve cases, and then it would be cleared up by Easter, and we now lead the world in it. And he wants to call it the China virus and blame yeah. China. And it's not, it's not sticking. This is one he can't explain away because people are dying. That's and right. then the bounty gate problem is because there are veterans who are still out there and they wonder if their president is going to protect them from those who will have, will place bounties on their head. That's, I mean, that undermines not only the authority of the U.S. government, but also undermines the morale of the troops in the field. So I, I think those, you're right, those are two very serious issues that maybe are making him um, held more accountable. But this office that he holds always saps you of your strength, even the best of them. You know, after a while, it, it, it weighs heavily on them. But he's created his own chaos and stress, has he not? I mean, he's added to it. Yeah, well, I, I mean, it's not the job because he's never done the job. You know, I don't think the job took a toll on him because he doesn't care about the job. He doesn't know what the job is, right? It's it's the the fact that things are starting to stick and that people are starting to question him and that he's not quite getting away with it anymore. It's the stress, the one thing he could point to, which by the way, was total bullshit. He was not responsible for the economy. No, but at I least know. he could point to the number, right? right? He can't do that anymore. Although I'm not, I don't know what's going on with the stock market, but the stock market's not the economy. We right. are, we have people who pretty soon are going to be evicted, aren't gonna be able to feed their families because Republicans in Congress think that $600 a week is too much money for them and it'll make them lazy and not wanna to go to work. That's the point. They meanwhile, should be paying not to go to work. Yeah, right? I mean, and meanwhile, they'll bail out the corporations to the tune of billions of dollars. Maybe they won't yeah. go to work either. Yeah, just ask Kodak. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, so I, I think it's that stress. It's like, he's probably sitting there like, wait a minute, why isn't this working anymore? You know, um, people used to say, quote him saying, where's my Roy Cohn? He's probably saying, where's my Fred Trump? Ah, what do you mean by that? I, I know, but explain. <laughs> my grandfather, for reasons that I, I speculate about in the book, but can never, you know, know definitively, bailed Donald out, promoted him, used every uh, everything in his arsenal to make sure that Donald get, got out of whatever scrapes. He used all so much money, hundreds of millions of dollars. He used all of his political connections. He used all of his power as a very, very wealthy New York real estate developer to get Donald out of bad situations that Donald put himself in. And then despite those 
egregious failures continue to fail upward. That's he wants somebody who can do that for them, and there is no such. No, person. there's no one that can do that. Nobody. For the people who are the Trump lovers who will always support Donald Trump, that base, and I, I maintain that over the course of his presidency, he has deepened his resolve to that base. He hasn't widened his appeal, but he's deepened it to, to mm-hmm. some of them. They're going to look at you and go, "You're you're a never Trumper." You know, even though you're part of the family, you're you're yeah. a liberal, you know, media construct. Uh, you'll get the death threats like I've had, all of that. And yeah. but what do you? What's the one thing you would want to tell a Trump supporter that you think they should know that they don't know about Donald? It's not something about Donald because I don't think there's anything you can say about Donald, but it's more about them vis-a-vis Donald. I would say. If you really care about this person, you wouldn't want him anywhere near the Oval Office because it's very bad for him. It's hurting him, it's making him worse, and it's not going to end well for him. I mean, nothing I say would make a difference, but that, first of all, it happens to be true. It's coming from a place, they can think about that coming from a place of compassion and concern, right? Right. Um, But, you know, there's really nothing because they're, it's a cult. Yeah, that's true. What you said, it, it's only going to end badly. What do you foresee? Well, the stress is only increasing. If, you know, I don't know what his, in, his inner circle does, but he has to be seeing <clears throat> real numbers, right? Right. Uh, both poll numbers for the election, COVID-19 numbers, uh, polls about, you know, Americans' attitudes towards his handling of uh, the virus. Um, You know, even something as trivial as my book sales, right? Those things are really going to get under his skin, are are going to make him feel even more trapped than he already must. And it's going to make him, I mean, I don't know if it's going to push him over an edge necessarily, but it's going to make him really ineffective at campaigning or, you know, paying attention to what he needs to pay attention to in order not to lose in a landslide. You know, it may make him less effective at cheating, although he's doing a pretty good job because I don't really care what anybody says, but when you're in his position and you're undermining people's faith, in the legitimacy of an American election and you're lying about mail-in voting and you're lying about the post office, you are actively cheating to steal an election. Yeah. I, I, I maintain, you know, I I talked to you about the slurring of words and the slowing down. One of the things that I have maintained is I think he's scared. Oh God. That is so true. People don't talk about that enough. That is Donald's main overriding emotion. He's terrified. He's been terrified his entire life. Really? Oh, yeah. Of what? Well, of being killed off by his father, primarily. Wow. I mean, I guess it started initially being terrified of by being abandoned by his mom, but then it became, you know, through my grandfather's inability to be a, be parental in any way that mattered, and then watching what happened to my dad, you know, my dad was kind, he was smart, he was funny, he was really funny. His friends adored him. He was very, he was the only self-made person in my family. He was a 
TWA pilot at the dawn of the jet age. He was probably the coolest person. And I'm not like, I didn't know that person. I'm just saying from everything I've heard from his friends who knew him at the time, he was incredibly cool, but he was really grounded, really kind, really generous, very handsome. And my grandfather still destroyed him. Why? Because he wasn't what he wasn't what my grandfather wanted him to be. My grandfather wanted a killer. He wanted somebody who only cared about winning, who only cared about the family business, who would lie, cheat, and steal to win. Uh, somebody who had no compunction about um, you know being cruel to people, who didn't particularly care about kindness, and you know who essentially. Donald has one interest outside of Donald. Right. And it's golf. That was the <laughs> only thing he and my grandfather disagreed about. My grandfather had no interest in golf, but because it was Donald, it was okay. Um, but that was it. He has no, he doesn't travel. He doesn't appreciate, he doesn't read. He doesn't have pets. He does, you know, um, uh, so he's a lot like my grandfather, you know, this very um, interior. And by that, I mean like living inside all the time person. Uh, who just cares about making money and, and being famous and, and that kind of thing. So he saw what happened to my dad and any objective person would recognize the value in my dad. Where did the racism come? The, um, I mean, the hatred towards, uh, uh, well, racism, the classism, um, not, uh, not appreciating LBGTQ rights. Where does all that come from in your family? I think, uh, you know, the class stuff is partially, if not predominantly, a way of not having to look back. You know, um, my grandmother grew up the youngest of 10 on a tiny island off the northwest coast of Scotland. And, uh, you know, very difficult circumstances at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, she came over here as a, I don't know, domestic servant is what I think what called. My grandfather, you know, grew up in uh, Queens, uh, a family of working people. I mean, my gra great grandfather did well, but you know, my gra great grandmother, they worked their asses off, you know? So I think it was just a way of leaving that all behind them and, um, you know, taking their rightful place uh, in the elite, so to speak. The rest of it is, I think- the KKK stuff? Yeah, you know, the only thing that surprises me about that story is that my grandfather would take time away from work to go to anything. Um, but, you know, it, the sentiment, you know, expressing the pro-KK sentiment doesn't surprise me. You know, Jamaica states in the 40s and 50s was like 100% white and Christian. You know, there was no brush with difference of any kind. And, I mean, this is a really racist country. Yeah, so, it is. And it was even more so that, well, maybe, I'm not, I don't know. We're giving, we're giving the forties and fifties a run for their money with our racism. Yes, we okay. are. Yeah. So, you know, the anti-Semitism, it's just like this casual thing in my grandparents' house. The misogyny was horrific. You know, you knew as a girl yeah. or a woman, you did not matter in my family. So Donald's attitudes towards women aren't really surprising given all that. And I think, you know, so part of it was just the milieu and part of it was just, it's another way to feel better about yourself. You know, if and all the, of these- And hmm? the anti-gay sentiment, I mean, that's the one thing I want, because yeah. I have known people that are, are very anti, they're very homophobic, and a lot of them are closeted. I'm not yeah. saying that's the case here, but I mean, yeah. what, what caused that? Is that a possibility? To be honest with you, um, it's 
not, it was not ever mentioned. Like homosexuality was not something people really talked about in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and even 70s. You know, so I never heard any homophobia in my grandparents' household. I assumed that they would be homophobic because they were everything else. Like, why stop there? You know, um, just like there was no blatant Islamophobia because nobody talked about it. But of course they would be, right? So I think, yeah, you always do though have to wonder when somebody is so anti something. Um, that they, the Donald wink at me, I've always wondered. <laughs> listen, he's so odd in so many ways that it's hard to know what any of his gestures mean. And that like, that was something that that's been the case from very well. He's, he's really bad at reading social cues and he's really bad at expressing what he means. Yeah. Right. So something about his, his inability to express love. Right. I mean, it could just be a function of the fact that because his father was a sociopath and because my grandmother was a pretty repressed, restrained person and there was practically no physical affection in that household. I mean, like the men shook hands, right? right. The women and the men shook hands and kissed on the cheek, right? That was it. Nobody hugged. Um, that, you know, I think early on he had these impulses towards affection and love uh, that kind of got beaten out of him. But in the meantime, his the people um, mirroring that behavior, or sorry, not mirroring, but, but the people um, acting out those behaviors were doing it in a way that was so perverted, like so different from what the love actually was, affection actually was, that he just kind of gets tripped up. Like he just doesn't know how to do it. Wow. Well, all right. We're going to take a short break. We'll come back. I've got a couple of closing questions for you. Mary, thanks for being here. We'll be right back. Hi, and we're back, and with me is Mary Trump, and she's the author of a book about her uncle, Donald Trump, and it's called Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. It almost sounds like something from a from a Late Night with David Letterman, the world's most dangerous <laughs> band. <laughs> most dangerous man. And I, 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 we've sat here and talked for uh, 45 minutes, and I'm looking behind you. We're on, for those of you know, this is all audio, but for those who don't know, I, we're, we're on Zoom and I'm looking behind you and I'm looking at a Gibson guitar that looks really nice. Do you play? I do, not nearly as well as I want to and I only play for myself, so. Um, well, what's your favorite, what's your music? What do you like? I, you know, I'm pretty eclectic, but you know, if I had to narrow it in terms of playing the guitar, certainly um, just, you know, classic rock folk, those would be my main. Uh, the Jazz is impossible for me, it's so hard. Oh my God, but I also love blues. Also hard, but not as hard as Jeff. If you're ever around to hop up on stage with my band and play. You're in a band? Oh, yeah. (gasps) What do you play? Classic rock. and I'm the lead singer. I do some rhythm guitar work, but uh, I've got that very same guitar that you have right there. (laughs) Oh, it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. I I play acoustic more than I play electric, um, but it's it's beautiful. Here's the big question. (laughs) How many guitars do you own? Uh, not as many as I want to, because I feel like you have well, to. That's the answer of every guitar player. Yeah, 
No, but I feel like it's not like 300. Um, I feel like I have to earn them and uh, I, I haven't earned one recently. I have four. That's a, well, yeah. Wait. That's four? I've got I've got six. Yeah. Like, yeah one yeah. autograph there. But they're fun to have and <clears throat> that's my one indulgence <laughs> is the guitar. And it's a good one. And so I as we as we come to the end of this, I, I guess what I one thing I I, I want to ask is about um and, and I don't know how to put this in the words. Your father was an alcoholic. I, I had an alcoholic father. I, and when you talk about the way that uh, Donald grew up, it reminds me of, of the way members of my own family grew up. And I'm sure everyone can relate to that. Yeah. But tell me if you can, I, and I, I always love to have one little anecdote, one little story you haven't told to anyone else. What, what could you provide that would be, an insight that you haven't told or that you haven't told very often. Hmm. <laughs> that's, a <laughs> Wait, that's, that's not in the book. Yeah. That's oh. not in the book. Brother. Uh, wow. That's a really tough question. Um, I could come up with, I feel like I, I feel stressed now. Um, <laughs> Jesus. Uh, I would love to say, can I get back to you on that? <laughs> totally drawing a blank. Um, well, let's go back to when he was, when you were growing up with, they were, that's all right. And they were teenagers. Yeah. Well, they, I mean, he would have been, when I was growing up, he was in his twenties. Okay. Sure. Um, it's not really an anecdote as much as it's just sort of a, an experience I had of him. Um, I'm all ears. And it, it was basically, like he was always at a remove from everybody else in the sense that he always seemed incredibly self-aware of his superiority. And I know that sounds like, yeah, no kidding. Right. But we're talking about like when he's home with his parents, with his siblings, with his niece and nephews, you know, throwing the ball around or hanging out in the kitchen or hanging out in the library, there was something so... Um, almost staged about him and as if he knew on some level that he had to play this very specific role that had been uh, and i wouldn't have known this at the time but right. that had been imposed upon him by his father and you know in retrospect i see why that might have been the case but as a kid, it always felt like that there was just this in, insurmountable distance between who he might have been and who he thought he was and all of the people who could have been close to him but weren't uh, because my grandfather treated him so differently and Donald, as a way to you know survive, um, bought into all of it and couldn't lower himself to our level, I guess. Um, not that he was mean or anything like that, but you know, my, my relationships with everybody else in the family were much more casual and um, real, even though they weren't that real as it well, turns out, but you know. It sounds like little boy lost. And, and if, yeah. he, if he weren't the president, I would have such strong empathy for what he's going through. Right, don't. For the fact that, yeah. no, I don't. Yeah. But the fact that he's destroying the country in the process. Yeah. But 
and and that I guess is is my last question for for this is what happened to Donald Trump's sense of empathy? Oh, it got, it got beaten out of him. I mean that figuratively, of course, but uh, you know, he saw what happened to my dad, um, who again was just systematically dismantled and humiliated. Again, TWA pilot, Dawn of the Jet Age, he may as well have been shooting up heroin on the corner of 108th and Amsterdam. That's how my grandfather treated my father, okay? So what would it have cost Donald or any of his siblings to be my dad's ally? Well, he always and, said that he looked up to his older brother and he said that he always valued his father. Donald also, when Donald speaks about my dad, he says two things, three things typically. He makes sure to point out that he was an alcoholic. He says he was handsome and he says he was kind doesn't say anything else. He doesn't say anything about being in the National Guard or being a pilot. And in my family, to call somebody's, somebody kind is to condemn them. Wow. The rest of us would look at that as a, as a, a moniker to attain. One, one could only hope. But look what's happened to the country. Like It's, it's right. so much more difficult to be kind now than it was four years ago. Boy, it sure is, and, and kindness is not a weakness, and yet that's the way he portrays it. And right. so his, and why does he defend his father as he does, do you think? Because he's terrified, to this day, okay, what people talk all the time about so-and-so going on Fox and speaking to their audience of one, which is Donald. Yeah. Donald's audience of one is my long-dead grandfather. Well, that says quite a bit. That's... And we'll leave it at that. And that's the, that's food for thought and a lot to ponder. Uh, the name of the show is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we look forward to next time. And Mary, thanks for being with us. I hope you join us again sometime. Thank you, Brian. <laughs>